Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and let's start today's broadcast, if you may, in verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, a Manin, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We have teachers and prophets here, found in verse 1, and I count such people to be four. And Barnabas was a Levite from Acts chapter 5, but here we have teachers and prophets. Now we have to remember that at this point in the early church's history, there is no New Testament. On top of that, the Lord is speaking to groups of men, and he's revealing himself to groups of men in different ways. We call that progressive revelation. We call that corporate revelation. There's no one man receiving all of the revelation from the Lord. And yet, if you look at most churches today, they have one man at the top of a pyramid structure. But the early church was led by men. And you get that from Hebrews chapter 1, how God spoke in sundry manners, in diverse ways, to the prophets via the fathers, so on and so forth. It's the same thing here. And here we have prophets and teachers. Now, a teacher is timeless. There were teachers back in the Old Testament. There were teachers in the time of the Lord Jesus. In fact, rabbi means teacher. And there were teachers certainly in the church age. But prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and minor prophets like Habakkuk, and Joel, and Micah, are no more. We don't need such prophets to give us words from the Lord. For example, thus saith the Lord. We have the word of God. We live by faith, not by sight. So here, you've got four men which have been cited by Dr. Luke. And also, it's fair to say that a prophet can, in some ways, with a lowercase p, be someone who reads a scripture. But primarily, when the word prophet appears in the Old Testament and the New Testament, such people are foretelling the future. And Agabus will be someone we read about later on. Look at verse 2, please. As he ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Ghost is now taking the lead. And I spent some time going through chapter 8 some weeks ago, showing that the angel of the Lord for the new covenant post the Lord's ascension back to heaven is the Holy Spirit. And here the Holy Ghost has made it quite clear he wants this group of men to fast and pray. You find this very much an everyday occurrence in the early church, fasting and praying. That's something which I don't do particularly well at. I'm good at working, I'm good at studying, I'm good at preaching and teaching, but praying and fasting is one of my weak points. I will admit to that. But it says the Holy Ghost spoke probably audibly, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. If you look at Acts chapter 9, you find the Lord Jesus Christ knocking Saul of Tarsus off his horse. And I think verse 6 is the point in Saul of Tarsus' life when he gets saved. And the word of God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he says, you are persecuting my people, therefore you are persecuting me. And Saul says to the Lord, what will you have me to do? In fact, he calls him Lord, which in Hebrew would have been probably Adonai. In Greek, it would be Kulios. But the point is, Jesus Christ calls Saul of Tarsus, in Acts 9 for service. Okay, but here the Holy Spirit is going to send Saul of Tarsus with Barnabas out to do the work. It's a great picture of the trinity of the Lord and also the trinity of the Lord working independently. Look at verse 3, please. 
And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. They, in reference to those in Antioch, prayed and fasted and laid their hands on them. You can't underscore the significance of the early church in reference to how they worked and functioned. I think sometimes people have the false notion that the early church was somehow primitive and have the same view of the Old Testament. But I want to say this morning that I think the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints were far more advanced and sophisticated than we probably give them credit for. And this wasn't some quick decision. They were praying and fasting. That's pretty difficult. It's difficult to get on your knees and pray. I mean, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. It's hard. I've done it. And fasting's hard as well. You try going 24 hours without any food. It's not easy. But here the early church thought nothing of it. It was second nature to them. And here this early church, led by Jewish men, not women, had prayed and fasted. And then they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Four. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. It must have been such an exciting time in the early church's history. Up until this point in time, the apostles have been primarily preaching to the Jews. Because salvation is of the Jews. But here, from chapter 13 onwards, the apostles are going to preach directly to the Gentiles. Now, we've seen a few Gentiles thus far in the book of Acts getting saved. But for the most part, it's been the Jewish apostles witnessing to the people of Israel. And they've used different methods. They preached in different ways, in different uh, environments. But people have come the same way. And they've received an imputed righteousness. It's always been grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And here, the early church is going to step it up a gear. They're going to spread out from Jerusalem, first of all to Antioch, modern day Syria. And now they're going to go to Cyprus, Gentile land. Look at verse 5. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. Acts chapter 13 is a part of scripture which the Seventh-day Adventists will cite for proof, so-called, that the early church, Jew and Gentile, would meet on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And I've heard SGA people spend hours arguing over this piece of scripture. The Catholics and the Calvinists fight over John chapter 6 in reference to, you can't come to me unless I draw you, in reference to, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood but here this piece of scripture is cited by the sda and also sabbath observers it could be baptists some baptists keep the jewish sabbath some pentecostals and charismatics keep the sabbath as well but here they've arrived in salamis a part of cyprus and they preach the word of god orally first of all which later will be written down and we will find it in the new testament but here they are preaching the word of God in an oral sense in the synagogues of the Jews. They're going to start preaching to the house of Israel. Wherever Paul went on his travels, he would first of all preach to the Jews. He had a love for the Jews, much like the Lord God of the Bible has a great love for the Jews. His love is unconditional. So we shouldn't be surprised that they have gone into a local synagogue to preach the word of God because salvation has to start with the house of Israel. But of course from there they're going to go to the Gentiles. And also they got John as their minister, their attendant, their assistant, if you will. There's no ministers in the New Testament. There's no uh, 
idea of a man wearing a dog collar or a mitre or any kind of clerical attire. That comes much later, primarily in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century. But keep that in mind, please, because some people will quote this chapter to argue for Sabbath observance, which is false, and they think that uh, this piece of scripture will give you uh, support for that. It does not. Look at verse 6, please. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul, and desired to hear the word of God. A false prophet, a sorcerer, called Bar-Jesus. There's one other person found in the Pauline epistles with the name Jesus. Now Jesus, of course, is the name of our Saviour, and we have to distinguish between just calling him Jesus to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to South America, there are many people called Jesus, Jesus. But here, this false prophet, a sorcerer, is referred to as Bar-Jesus, and he is going to thwart the witness of Barnabas and Saul. I showed you from chapter 12 last time how King Herod, known as Archelaus, the king who put John the Baptist to death and interrogated the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he gave him up to Pilate to put him to death in a physical sense. But that king didn't get saved, and that's important to note, because I think behind these kings and queens there are unclean spirits. You get that from the book of Daniel. There's an account in Daniel where he's praying for help, and the Lord sends Gabriel to get down to Daniel, and he arrives and he says, I spent 21 days trying to get to you, Daniel. I had to fight the prince of Persia, which suggests to me that in every part of the world, cities and probably leaders, there are unclean spirits which are assigned to them. Now, that's a world that we don't know much about. That comes under demonology. But here this false prophet, a Jew, unfortunately, has been trying to thwart Sergius' Paulus, a prudent man, from receiving the word of God. This man is a deputy of the country of Salamis. He's a VIP. And Paul was told back in Acts chapter 9 how he would preach to kings and rulers. And here they just arrived wanting to do great things. And this false prophet, a Jew, as I say, is trying to stop the witnessing. And I think what stopped Herod from getting saved, this is my own private thought now, was probably an unclean spirit trying to block the witness, trying to block the word of God getting across. John the Baptist preached to Herod, but to no avail. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't even speak to Herod, and yet that was a silent witness to Herod, and that too was to no avail. And yet the Lord would preach to Pilate in a limited sense, but with Pilate as well, that didn't result in salvation. So I think these leaders, kings and queens today, and days gone by, are surrounded by unclean spirits. Like I say, we don't know much about that. That comes under the subject of demonology. But let's read on and see what else we can ascertain from this piece of scripture. Look at verse 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, which stood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. We do a lot of street work at this ministry, and we've discussed this over the years, Patrick and I, that the vast majority of people that we speak to are not interested in the gospel. Now we understand that, we're living in secular times, and yet how often we've come to the conclusion that such people are not believing because of unclean spirits. That's partly pictured back in Matthew 13 with the parables of the Lord, 
and also from Second Corinthians chapter 4, how Satan has blinded those that won't believe the gospel. On top of that, you've got from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, how the Lord himself, during the Great Tribulation, will pour out strong delusion on those that refuse to believe the truth and be saved. But here, Elymas, the sorcerer, which is his name by interpretation, referred to as Bar-Jesus in verse 6, withstood them. He's trying to block them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. That's a terrible event when someone tries to stop you witnessing to them. And I spent many years witnessing to people in false religions, and I get into a great conversation with such people, and then someone comes along, sometimes out of the blue, and breaks up the conversation. It's clearly demonic. It's clearly sent from the devil himself to stop such a person from being saved. And here, Barnabas and Saul are not going to allow this unclean spirit to thwart the witness. And I can say so much more about demonology, but haven't got time today. Look at verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? The switch from Saul to Paul in verse 9, also in brackets, now demonstrates to me that Saul is now going to become known as Paul. Why? Because Saul is a Roman Jew. He has two parts of his nationality. He's a Jew, of course, from the tribe of Benjamin, which would be great when it comes to witnessing to the Jews. But he's also Paul, which is great when he comes, or when it comes to him witnessing to the Gentiles. So that's a very subtle switch from Saul to Paul, but he's filled with the Holy Ghost, which almost suggests to me that what he's now going to say and do is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets his eyes on him and says, O full of all subtlety and all mischief. He's speaking, I think, to the unclean spirit in this man. And yet he has to address the man himself because the man himself has probably invited this unclean spirit into him. Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Just imagine that for one moment. Saul of Tarsus, known as Paul, is speaking to the unclean spirit inside of the man and also to the man who has the unclean spirit within him. This goes back to prophets and teachers. This goes back to the Lord speaking to different people in different ways and also anointing men in different ways back in the time of the apostles. But today, things are slightly different. So Saul of Tarsus is speaking to this individual and he'll take control of the situation. 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season, and immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Go back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 19, in reference to Lot almost being dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah, a picture of a carnal Christian being raptured before the Great Tribulation, and uh, those angels are sent from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go to the house of Lot, and Lot says, come on in, and they go in, But the local Sodomites have seen these two angels arriving and they could have been 
rather attractive to look on. We don't know. Angels in the Bible are always referred to as being men. And Lot says, come in, you can't stay in the streets. And they go into his house. And these Sodomites come to the house, start knocking on the door, let us in. We want to know the angels. We want to do this, we want to do that, so and so forth. And Lot will offer his daughters to this mob of Sodomites to appease them, which shows how depraved and how backslidden Lot was. And yet Lot was saved all along. And the angels strike the Sodomites with blindness. And they go about trying to pull at the door, bang on the door. You would think that being struck down by blindness would cause them to back off. But they are filled with lust. They're out of control. They're like animals. And they're banging on the door, let us in, blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know the rest. The angels depart with Lot and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a similar picture to what happened back in Genesis chapter 19. And the tragedy is that back in Genesis 19, such men were not saved. They were consigned to everlasting hell. And here's such an individual, bar Jesus, Elymas has now been struck with blindness for a season. We're not told how long that season was, but I can imagine it would have been for probably several days. We're not told. And off he goes, seeking some to lead him by the hand. That should have resulted in his salvation. But Paul, speaking with the foreknowledge of the Lord, addresses him as a child of the devil, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou enemy of all righteousness, Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? It's almost as if Paul knew this man would never be saved. And maybe got that from the Lord, I don't know. But nevertheless, this man is now blind. And off he goes, trying to find somebody to lead him by the hand. But that miracle, that intervention, will result in a man getting saved in verse 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. No works involved. He believed. Come as you are if you're unsaved, and believe on the Lord, believe in the Lord. And the Bible says you will pass from death unto life. Look at verse 13, please. Now, and Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John Mark, who wrote, we believe, the Gospel of Mark, was related to Barnabas. I think Barnabas was his uncle, from memory. And John Mark has now departed and gone back to Jerusalem. That would cause a split. That would cause a deep feud later on in the book of Acts between Paul and Barnabas. John should have stayed with Paul and Barnabas in reference to the work. They've been sent out. They've been commissioned. They've been anointed by the Holy Ghost. Verses 2, 3 and 4. And yet for some reason he's gone back to Jerusalem. Maybe the work was too much for him. Maybe he wasn't quite equipped or ready to go on with Paul and Barnabas. But like I say, that will result in Paul and Barnabas later having a falling out. 14. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Poseidon and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. From memory, there are two Antiochs in the New Testament. One is obviously found here in reference to being in Cyprus, but the other Antioch from memory is in Syria. So don't get confused with the two Antiochs here. But again, where are they going? To the synagogue of the Jews on the Sabbath day. And they sat down. They are Jews. This is a Sabbath day, being a Saturday. They're going to go to their local synagogue. And they're going to witness to their Jews. When I got saved, I witnessed to my friends, my associates that were Catholic. Why? Because I was a Catholic. 
before I became a Christian. Paul's not a witness to the Jews because he is and was a Jew. Salvation starts at home, if you will. If you're a Muslim and you get saved, you're going to witness to your Islamic friends. If you're a Buddhist and you're saved, you're witness to your Buddhist friends. It's as simple as that. But you can't get these verses to teach Sabbath observance for today, which is what the SDA would have you believe, or some Protestant groups would have you believe. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4, and on top of that, you have liberty from Romans 14 to mark a day out and worship the Lord, or not mark a day out and worship the Lord. That's our liberty. That's what Galatians is all about. Don't let somebody ever take your liberty from you and somehow bog you down with rituals and holy days and Sabbaths and somehow backload the gospel and get you into lordship salvation and start giving you a hard time and pounding you because you're not as holy, quote-unquote, as they are, or sanctified, quote-unquote, as they are. Just allow these verses to speak as they are in the text in a historical setting. Paul's a Jew. He's gone to another town. It's Saturday. He's going to go into the synagogue to witness to the Jewish people. That's all there is to this. 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Here's a weekly Bible study. And they're reading the law and the prophets. There's three parts of the Old Testament. There's the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And here, this synagogue... It's just going to read the law and the prophets. The law will be the first five books of the Bible, probably, and the prophets. Clearly, Kings 1 and 2, Samuel 1 and 2, Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. But here, the call goes out from the leaders of the synagogue. You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. It's an open invitation to share the gospel. And of course, if I know Saul of Tarsus, now referred to as Paul the Apostle, They'll take it just like that. 16. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and he that feared God give audience. Did he get that? Men of Israel. That's the first group of people he is addressing, the Jews. And ye that fear God. In reference, and we'll pick it up during the next broadcast, to religious proselytes. There are no Gentile, Bible-believing Christians in this synagogue on this particular day. This group of people from the synagogue are non-believing Israelites, unsaved Jews. They haven't received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So you're going to speak to two groups of people, men of Israel, children of Abraham, and ye that fear God, give audience. It goes back to Acts chapter 10, when Peter stands up and he says, all those in every nation that fear God and do righteousness, they are respected or they are received from the Lord, they are uh, in good stead with the Lord. In fact, I just want to read it to get it right, because this does get quoted. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That's 10.35. But go back to Acts 4.12 very quickly, because I don't want anybody getting this uh, wrong. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter speaking there in chapter 4. Peter speaking in chapter 10. And Paul speaking in 13, 16. So when it says he stands up and beckoning with his hand, says, men of Israel, and ye that fear God, he's simply addressing the group of people that fear God. 
in reference to Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. But again, there's no Bible-believing Christians present during this Sabbath service. Give audience. Listen to me. And he will take the lead and he will make it as clear as he can how the Lord was always going to save a group of people. First of all, the Jews, and then save another group of people, the Gentiles, and eventually have one fold, one flock. But these verses, and I'm out of time for today's broadcast, simply demonstrate that the apostles were Jewish, witnessing to their own brethren, their own kinsmen. Hence why they are going into the synagogue on a Sabbath day to witness to them. Men of Israel, leaders of the local synagogue, children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and ye that fear God, Gentile proselytes, and perhaps there were some Gentiles present that went along for the meal afterwards, like they do to most churches today. They go along for tea and coffee afterwards. Ye that fear God, give audience. He'll lead up to explaining the Old Testament, much like Stephen did back in Acts chapter 7. But please, one last time, don't allow these verses to give the impression that the early church met on a Saturday in a local synagogue to worship the one true God. That's not true. However, I will say this, that the Jewish believers that got saved during the early church no doubt would have converted their synagogues to assemblies or churches. That's true. They're the structure already in place. But this group of people are not yet believers in their Messiah. This group of Jewish believers are just everyday children of Israel meeting on a Sabbath to read the Law and the Prophets, the Jewish Tanakh. And Paul will take that event to preach to them. On top of that, they give him the invitation to preach to them. So you can't say he's forcing his views on anybody. No way. They say very clearly, men of Israel, if any man has any word, let him speak up now. In other words, let's hear what you have to say. Do you want to share the scriptures with us? And Saul gets up and preaches the word of God to his people because he loved them like God loves Israel with an everlasting love. So 16 verses from Acts chapter 13. And now Paul is no longer referred to as Saul of Tarsus. Now he will be referred to as Paul the Apostle. Now he's going to start to preach to the Gentiles. And yet he will always preach to the Jews as and when he gets a chance to, the opportunity to. But the gear has now switched from chapter 13 right up until Acts 28. Paul the Apostle is going to become the Apostle to the Gentiles. And over time, he will receive the gospel of the grace of God. It's still progressive revelation. They're still working with what light God has given them. And God is still choosing to speak to different men over different periods of time and reveal different parts of his message to them in different ways. That way to stop any one man being puffed up and stop any one man from taking on the uh, false notion that he perhaps is the leader, the Pope or the archbishop, if you will. So I'll close there, one last time in 16. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Listen to me, this is divine inspiration. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I've just turned one man blind through sin, and now I'm going to offer salvation and mercy to those in the synagogue, if you will receive it. And I'll talk about free will next week, and the Lord's sovereignty and how they run side by side. But I'm out of time for today's broadcast, so I'll pick it up next week in Acts 13, verse 17.